Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a novelist who's won multiple awards for her best-selling books. In 2007, she was named as one of Waterstone's 25 authors for the future. Her acclaimed first novel, After You've Gone, won the Betty Trask Award. And The Hand That First Held Mine took the 2010 Costa Novel Award. Her 2020 novel, Hamnet, won the Women's Prize for Fiction and the Fiction Prize at the National Book Critics Circle Awards. And her new novel, The Marriage Portrait, out next month, is much anticipated by her many fans. But she suffered a life-threatening illness as a child. She's had so many near-death experiences that she subtitled her memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. The things in life which don't go to plan are usually more important and more formative in the long run than the things that do, she says. You need to expect the unexpected, to embrace it. Maggie O'Farrell, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. And we're talking to you in your beautiful writing studio, which is all glass and in the middle of your garden. And there's actually an old-fashioned inkstand on the table. Do you write in a pen and ink? Not exclusively, I would say, but I use it when I'm writing by hand, which I do sometimes. Um, yes, I do, actually. I really love fountain pens. I actually collect vintage fountain pens, particularly Parker and Schaefer, so I always buy them whenever I find them in flea markets or charity shops. And does it change um, how you write? It must. I think it does. I mean, I have terrible handwriting, I should say, and I, my, my handwriting is most legible. But also, it's a kind of ecological stance as well, because I hate the idea of using a pen and then just chucking away the plastic casing or even plastic ink cartridges I hate throwing those away so but there's something very I like the ritual of you sit down every morning and I fill my pen and then I write my diary and then I write whatever notes I need but you know I, I'm not saying that I write my novels by longhand using a pattern pen that would be really that would be taking it to extremes obviously although your desk is so neat isn't it you've just got well, the actually, one well, dictionary this is my writing studio see in the house I have a study which is it's really not absolutely crammed with all kinds of rubbish and lunch boxes and school permissions forms and you know it's, that's where it all goes. This is why we're at here because it's nice and tidy and quiet. And Lem Sisse once said to us, a poet, that he thought you need to have a real reason to create a kind of spark that gives you something to write about, uh, and that you know that do you think the best literature does come from a place of pain? I don't know. I mean, I think I would agree with Lem Sisse, certainly that you need that spark. But I think also what adversity can create in your life, particularly when you're a child, is the craving for escapism. And I think that was certainly true. You know, I think all 
writers before they are writers, you you have to be a reader. Mm. You know, all writers are first readers, and you know, I think reading itself is a huge escapism. It was for me as a child. You know, when I was ill, I spent um, a year or more in bed, pretty much on my own. You know, without my sisters or friends, and that's all I did. And when I couldn't physically hold a book, I listened to audio books. And then I just read my books and I read them over and over and over again. I read from one end of my bookcase to the other and read them, you know, so I read my favourite books six, seven, eight, nine times. I knew them off by heart. What was your favourite one? Well, I loved the Moomins to the Janssen. Um, and someone gave me Moomin Land in midwinter when I was really quite ill. And I remember being completely struck by that because I don't know if you know it, but it opens with Moomin waking up mm. and all his family are hibernating and he's in the world and the world is completely unrecognisable so looking back it's a really perfect metaphor for a child who's ill because you wake up and suddenly your whole world is different life is completely unrecognisable and you're everyone's absent it's it was very looking back now obviously it would have struck a child who's suddenly become incapacitated and was basically living in hospital (laughs) so I'm but you know Tilly Anson's writing is astonishing and I do remember thinking after I'd read it several times, you know, I remember thinking, having, obviously it was a very kind of early level, sort of very basic level, but thinking, you know, why does she start this chapter with dialogue? Why isn't there a once upon a time or, you know, a kind of scene setting? And what difference does that make? What difference does it make that we're starting immediately? It gives it immediacy. And, and what difference does it make that it's in the present tense or the past tense? And so I do remember then thinking in those ways. But so I love the movement and I love Pippi Longstocking and I loved uh, uh, Secret Garden. And Philippa Pierce's mm. books, you know, Tom Smith McGarland. Yeah. So, yeah, so I read those over and over again. <laughs> Your early childhood before you fell ill sounds mm. idyllic. You were born in the middle of three sisters in Coleraine in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland, and then you moved to Wales when you were two. What are your earliest memories? Were you very connected to nature when you were young? We were, and we used to spend a lot of time in Ireland, out in the west of Ireland, and that's those are really deep-seated memories somehow of being staying on farms and riding donkeys and going to cut turf and <laughs> being out on the beach, you know, the beaches in, say, Connemara, which were which are actually coral beaches. You don't get sand, you get these little tiny, tiny bits of broken coral. Um, so, no, I was. I think I've always been very um, aware of my surroundings, I think, certainly, and very interested in nature. I loved animals and... So no, I did. I did have a very good childhood. I had two sisters, so I always had people to play with. And, and your mum said you were a nightmare to rear. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I think, I think I was very. I was just very. I didn't really, wasn't really interested in following rules and being good and sitting still and keeping myself neat and tidy. I was. <laughs> I was always. I think just filled with curiosity. Actually, um, Graham Swift said in one of his novels that curiosity weds us to the world. And I think that's very true. I've always wanted to know what's what happens if you do X or Y or what's around the next corner or, you know, if you say something like this or what happens when you put that word in the sentence. It's always been a... I suppose that's where my interest in narrative comes from, you know, what happens if. I mean, that's what narrative is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what stories are. the mm-hmm. essence of it. Then when you were eight, one morning you woke up with a terrible mm. headache. Yeah. Just describe what happened. What did it feel like? Well, it was towards the end of the summer holidays and I remember waking up and having, yes, like you say, an absolutely terrible headache, so terrible that everything, like Moomin really, waking up in the winter seemed different. My vision was slightly altered and um, 
and gradually what happened was that I gradually lost um, fine motor control and then gross motor control and so I was started to shake and then I couldn't lift my head up and then I couldn't pick up pens or cutlery or a spoon and then eventually I couldn't walk um, well by which point I was um, in a smaller hospital and then I was sent to the big hospital in Cardiff and I was in intensive care. Must have been terrifying for your parents as well. Yes, I think it was. I mean, actually, it's funny thinking about it now, you know, as an adult with children of a similar age, I can see it from their point of view. It must be absolutely <laughs> terrifying. Did they know what you had? But... No, nobody could quite work it out. And I had lots of tests and they thought it was meningitis or they narrowed it down eventually to encephalitis, encephalitis of the cerebellum. Uh, yeah, which was quite rare. And it was very severe, obviously, the one that I had. When did you first realise it was something seriously wrong, not just a headache? What was the first thing that made you think I think this when was... I... I mean, obviously, going into hospital is quite a big... Mm. You realise something's wrong. But I think I knew, you know, being unable to pick up or mm. grip, that was quite a... I remember being quite frightened by that. I remember distinctly remember trying to pick up my toothbrush and thinking, I, I can't do it, you know. Mm. And realising the sort of message from wanting to do something wasn't reaching my muscles or my nerves. I remember telling my mum that... And I, but I do remember coming, walking downstairs when I when I had started to shake and my legs were going. I remember the family doctor who'd known us for years came and he was standing in the front hall with my mum and I was coming down the stairs and I remember the two of them watching me as I was trying to come down the stairs. Oh. <laughs> and I do remember thinking that those are not good expressions, oh. you know, that's something. Yeah. I remember him turning to my mum and saying, she has to go to hospital, you have to take her now, yeah. you know. Were you the kind of child that thought about death at all then? Before then, uh, it's funny, it's really hard to know what I was... It's hard to kind of pinpoint what I was like before. That's the funny mm. thing. And I do remember being... I remember the sensation of being very physically able, which obviously I haven't really been since. I mean, obviously I'm much more able now than I, I was, but the idea of not thinking about motion and thinking about ability, physical ability. I have that sort of strange sort of root of memory. But in terms of who I was before and who I became afterwards, it's, it's quite hard to to fathom, you know, mm. what changed and what didn't, because you're quite unformed, really, by the time you're mm. seven or eight, aren't you? There's still, mm. there's an awful lot up. And what was the most frightening moment? You talk about going into a scanner and that being oh, yes. really frightening. I still have horror, I still have terrible claustrophobia. Do you? And <laughs> yes, because of the I scanner? Do. I think it must be that. I can't think what else it would be. Yeah. You have to be so still, don't you? Yeah, you have to be completely still. And it's huge, and it's noisy. You know, I mean, yeah. I think, in, you know, whenever it was, 1980 or 81, I think they were particularly... I mean, that was terrifying. I had to be sedated. And being sedated is horrible. Yeah. Because yeah. they tried to strap you down. Yeah, that's right. They tried to strap me down. Oh. Yeah. So that was awful. And also, my, they did it without my mum being there, which is... Mm. You know, you're thinking about it now. It's just... It's just funny. And then they tried again with my mum. And my mum could come into the room with me. But even then, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. Mm. Even now, there's a cupboard in our house under the stairs, and I have trouble, okay. <laughs> trouble going in there. It's low spaces. <laughs> <laughs> get me. And you overheard a nurse, didn't you, saying yes, that's right. to somebody else, there's a little girl dying there about yeah, you. Yeah, and right. was that when you realised that? I think that's when I realised that I was, they expected me to die. I hadn't realised it before then. Because when you're a child in hospital, you know, nobody, nobody really tells you what's wrong. And obviously mm. you get a very sanitised, metabolised version from your mum or your dad or whatever. But, I mean, obviously I knew something was really wrong because mm. I couldn't move and I was in an isolation room, you know, I knew that was, <laughs> those are not good signs. But I hadn't really, I didn't, hadn't clocked that I was in mortal danger, certainly. And what happened was, so I had a nurse, at that point I was under 24-hour watch, and there was a nurse with me all the time, and the door to my room was open, and somebody was walking past the corridor, and they told the child to be quiet because there was a little girl 
dying in the room. And I, my first thought, I remember thinking, oh, that's awful, poor little girl, you know. I wonder how old she is, you know, what a terrible thing to die as a child. And then the nurse in the room next to me jumped up and shut the door and looked really embarrassed. And that's when I thought, oh, my God, they mean me. They think I'm the one who's dying. And what did you feel? Were you frightened of dying? Or did you not really think it was real? Not really. Actually, I remember feeling, oh, well, how, how did I not see that? You know, oh, of course it's me. You know, why did I... And I felt sort of... I felt sort of stupid because I thought, well, of course that's what all this means, you know. So did you sort of feel resigned to dying? I don't know. I think I... I remember feeling slightly... I suppose in a way. I mean, I was so ill, you know, that you're in a very altered mental state anyway. And I couldn't move, you know. So I remember... And I remember feeling very sad, certainly. Very sad. Because, mm. you know, that felt... There was a lot left. There was a lot of living I still mm -hmm. needed to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you couldn't you write mean. anything down, then, could you? Or no, you nothing. I couldn't or... even pick up. If there'd been a pen on the bedside table, I couldn't have picked it up. No. So I had my audiobooks that I had. So a neighbour had given us, because we didn't have anything like that, uh, some story tapes and a tape machine so that I could borrow it. But I had to ask people to turn them over for me when they finished. <laughs> and I had Felicity Kendall reading Tales of Beatrix Potter and somebody else reading My Naughty Little Sister. So I listened to those over and over again. And still to this day, when I hear Felicity Kendall's voice, mm. <laughs> I, I can hear, I can picture my hospital room. And, but so, I still love Beatrix Potter. Amazing stories. Beautiful vocabulary. And then Jimmy Savile visited you at one point, yes, didn't right. he? What yes. happened? Can you remember it vividly? Yes, I do, because he was so... He was really famous, mm -hmm. you know, and I used to watch him every week on TV. So... So I do remember suddenly, <clears throat> I must have been asleep, and I woke up, and there he was, standing over me. Quite and it creepy. Was... Very creepy. Well, at the time, it wasn't creepy, but it was just, it seemed so astonishing. I mean, it was, you know, obviously it was a series, it was one more series of astonishing incidents mm. that, among many, because I, you know, so many strange things had happened to me at that point. It's slightly just... dreamlike with his Yes, yeah, very because I'd woken his... up, and there he was, and... Necklace. And it was, yeah, it was very mm. strange. And your almost, parents in the room? My parents weren't there. and But the nurse, the key thing, I think, which my life could have gone in a very different direction, but I was lucky that I had a 24-hour watch, so there was a nurse mm. with me. But I do remember him saying to her twice, you can go, I'll look oh. after her. Oh, goodness. And you once said that going through a really severe illness completely refigures you yeah. in your life, and it's, it's sort of like passing through fire. What do you think it then had on your foot? Can you remember really how you changed? I think everything changed, actually, because when I left hospital, I... So the, first of all, they thought I was going to die because they thought the paralysis that the encephalitis was giving was in, in my voluntary actions would affect my involuntary body responses. So they thought that it was going to affect my heart and my respiratory mm. system, but at which point I would have, I would have died. Mm. Um, but it didn't. And, but then they thought I wouldn't walk again and that I wouldn't be able to lead an independent life. And they wanted to put me in what they referred to as a unit. I didn't even know what a unit was, but I knew I didn't like the idea. It's not mm. a very nice word, is it? Mm. Um, so actually, I think I owe a huge amount, an awful lot, to physiotherapists because I do remember a physiotherapist coming to my hospital room to visit and her saying, quite respectfully but firmly to the doctor, the neurologist who was saying there's no point in giving her any physical therapy. I remember the physiotherapist saying, no, I think I can help her. I think mm. you can. You know, can, will you let us try? So you could have just disappeared, like in yeah. Esme. In your book, Absolutely. You yes. could have just gone into... 
absolutely convalescent home and yeah, not come out. I could have done very easily, very easily, without a lot of people fighting in my corner. Um, and so that's what happened. I went, first of all, I had sort of hydrotherapy in the hospital pool, and then I did physiotherapy and lots of exercises and lots of lifting weights. And, <laughs> and eventually, a year or so later, I could walk again, just. Amazing. Yeah. And Marcel Proust was also bedbound for a year as a child, and he always I I thought that, that. He, that's what made him able to write in remembrance of things past. Do you mm. think it did turn you into a writer that makes you more observant, more empathetic? listening to the language on your tapes? I think, yes, I think it did. I think it, uh, I think it probably was instrumental in me being a writer, partly because I, you know, I think, so, you know, obviously at that age, your brain is developing so many different directions, you know, with all these neurons and synapses firing in different ways. And in a, a so-called normal childhood, you'd be running around and there'd be a lot of physical development going on. So, so I think a lot of all that sort of neurological energy, if you're forced to lie in a bed for a year goes into sort of mental or literary or you know whatever <laughs> your imagination because that's all you've got you know I mean it wasn't a time when I suppose a child these days would have watched a lot of tv but I didn't it wasn't the kind I mean yeah. you know we're all a similar age there was one play school was on at one once a day and, then, <laughs> <laughs> and that was it there's nothing else News <laughs> yeah, yeah so that was also I was and I think also spending a lot of time on your own probably is part, obviously part of convalescence. Yeah. Convalescence is a very strange state. You know, you are on your own and you're this sort of quiet uh, space in the middle of all this other activity. Because obviously I know now myself that if there's a sick child in the house, there's an awful lot going on, you know, as the parent or the siblings or whatever. So I think it's it's a very, it's a big mixture of mm. things, certainly. But it impacts on everyone, doesn't it? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's something that's shared by the whole family. Definitely. It's not just you, but... At the time, I think, as a child, you don't necessarily realise that. And do you still have sort of mild muscle pains and... So I have, yeah, very, very issues. mild neurological mm. issues. Yeah, so I have problems with my balance and uh, proprioception, which is the the sort of awareness of your where your body is and your limbs are in space. So if I... You could probably pick up that cup of tea without looking at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I can't do that. So if I did that, I would knock that off, and it would. <laughs> I so would do you do any sports, or could you play tennis? No, I'm terrible. No, I can't do anything like that. Absolutely shocking. Terrible. I mean, I think I don't know if I was. It would have been anyway. But no, I hate. Yeah, I, I think also I have a hatred of sport because obviously I hated it mm. in school. Um, but I do, and I have you know various yeah muscle problems, but nothing. I mean, honestly, nothing like I could have done. Mm. I consider myself extremely fortunate. You have to sleep with the light on and things, don't you? So That's right, yeah. So I can't walk around in the dark. So if I, yeah, I couldn't, if I need to get up in the night, I need to turn the light on so I can see where everything is. Because mm. my brain has no sense of whether I'm up or down or on my side or on my back or anything like that. I have no, I rely on my my so vision for that. Mm. Well, I'm just used to it. It just seems, mm. <laughs> it's normal to me. <laughs> it's normal. And you write in your memoir that coming so close to death as a young child gave you a brand of recklessness. And that, that's what... <laughs> comes out and I am, I am, I am. It's just a, yeah. a series of, of risk-taking some of the time. I mean, some of the time it happens by accident, but some of the time you almost purposely go out, don't you, to... Yes, I think it's true. I think I was, yes. Look, I, I really was a nightmare to rear. Um, <laughs> I think it was, I mean, I don't know. I think coming so close to death and I think being aware of it, I think it could have, could have gone either way. It could have made me into a very cautious person and very risk-averse which interestingly both my sisters are 
And I wonder whether that is part of it. I don't know why. It's watching you. <laughs> yes, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's harder watching someone mm. else go Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or having seen that happen mm. to your sister. I mean, mm. my older sister was 10, you know, which is, my younger was five. And, but who knows what it was like. I think it was awful for them, mm. you know, for me to suddenly vanish from the house and my parents to be so worried. But I think with me anyway, for whatever reason, it went completely the other way. And I, I've always felt that I have lived on maybe not borrowed time, but extra time. You know, I knew that I perhaps should have died in a way or I was expected to live a life in a wheelchair, as in, you know, a life of dependence, but for whatever reason, I didn't. You know, and I've always felt that I've been given this extra, extra time and extra ability and I need to make absolutely the most of it that I possibly can, mm -hmm. that I possibly can. But also, interesting, actually, one of the things I discovered when I was doing a bit of research for my memoir... Um, because, you know, obviously you don't necessarily research a memoir because it's, it's supposed to be your memories, but I did do a bit of research into the illness that I'd had because I hadn't really gone back and looked into it at all. And I did talk to uh, a neurologist and he said, and I had always assumed, or I'd always been told anyway in the 80s, that when your cerebellum, which is the part of your brain, um, just where your neck meets your skull, which was the part that was damaged by my encephalitis, they said that I was told at the time that that's just... It's to do with motor and um, balance, and that that's the kind of damage that I had uh, I had undergone. But actually, this neurologist said no. But recent um, <laughs> recent research reveals that the cerebellum is actually involved in risk taking. Uh, so it lessens your risk. Do you I think? know. Apparently, yes, it does. It sort of inhibits a, a sort of an inhibition of the fear mechanism, which is possibly true. Who knows? It's all a Interesting mix. So interesting. <laughs> so you'd missed a year of school and yeah, then going back than, yeah. sounds really hard as well because you were bullied terribly, weren't you? And yes. the teachers were pretty grim too. What what happened? What was the worst well, moment? It was, I mean, it's not easy going back to school. You know, you miss a huge amount of school mm -hmm. and also you go... But I was a different person when I got back. You know, I had a lot of... Uh, still had quite a lot of residual uh, walking problems and writing problems and things. But I should say, I mean, I had... Um, a very good friends. I had friends that I'd had since I was really small, uh, one of whom I'm still in touch with, and I reminded her recently, I said, do you remember when me and I came back to school? I said, we were told to go upstairs in the building, and I couldn't walk upstairs at this point, so I could only crawl. And, and I said to her, do you remember? I said, you crawl with me. That's incredible. <laughs> I know. And she said, I don't remember that. And I said, no, you did. I? And I said, someone was shouting at me saying, you know, you need to walk. And you turned around and said, but she can't. And so we're going to crawl, both of us. Amazing. <laughs> and amazing. She's still my friend. And do you ever see any of the bullies or not? No. I mean, actually, the bullies mostly were people I didn't particularly know. There were people in other classes. And no, I don't. I mean, this was in South Wales where I don't, um, I don't often go, actually. Not, not because of that. <laughs> it just so happens. Um, no, I mean, actually, I don't, I don't bear any ill will towards the people who bullied me. I think there is a sense that... They didn't know what was wrong with me. It was, and I think a lot of bullying comes from fear, doesn't it, or the unknown. And they probably had never been taught to be accepting to people with differences. You know, I don't bear them any any ill will. Do you think that having overcome that kind of physical adversity made it easier to deal with the emotional hardship as well, or was it harder in a way? I think it's hard to differentiate them, actually, isn't it? You know, our bodies are so closely wedded to our minds or emotions, aren't they? Mm. You almost enjoyed becoming an outsider, didn't you? I love that idea of you 
embracing not being in the cool gang that you because <laughs> there is that sense isn't it you that you look at them and there's a moment when you realize actually you don't want to be there anyway well I was having this Quite conversation liberating. I've had this kind of conversation with my children especially my daughter recently and I was saying to her because she was talking about this the kind of cool gang or the alpha females and I was saying to her but would you would you want to be mm. in that because it's so stressful to be in the alpha gang isn't it because you have to look a certain way and you've got to Dress girls. a certain way. Yes, exactly. Mm. And you've got to think a certain way and you can't deviate from... I said, it must be so stressful to be mm. in that gang. And it's never, you know, maybe these aren't your people. It's not as much fun <laughs> and that's okay. it looks. Yeah, I think it's a lot more fun to be on the outside looking in. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, Maggie O'Farrell. There'll be more from us after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest, Maggie O'Farrell. When you were 16, you almost drowned. Yes. It was terrifying, but actually you jumped in. I did. Yeah, that's the kind of thing you do. Well, that's the kind of thing I did when I was 16. Um, yeah, so that was it. That's when I moved to Scotland, and it was very late at night, and we were all teenagers, and we were daring each other, and somebody dared somebody to jump off the end of the pier, so I did, and, but the tide was going out, so I know, it was ridiculous, but I've lucky, very luckily for me, among my friends was a very strong swimmer, so he jumped in and pulled exactly. me out. I know. But also for you, without that sense of up and down, side and yeah, that's it must right. have been particularly dangerous, wasn't it? Well, I think all these things, like everything else in life, are enmeshed, you know, I think maybe yeah. I took the dare, but actually I don't have the physical capability to swim mm. you know be a strong swimmer in that going tide certainly so it is all related but it's stupid but I do love I love sea swimming and I still do and I still will jump in but I, I'm much more careful these days, especially since having children mm. my risk taking mm. took um <laughs> I died <laughs> I yeah. yes I've been a lot more careful since then. but when you it's were under the water me. you must have thought for a moment that you were going to die because it sounds terrifying not knowing if you're one way or yes, the other yes I did realize that I was in real trouble mm. but I think in, it's funny in those times you know, again, one of the things the, the neurologist I spoke to talked about when I was writing I Am 
he said that the, sometimes the reason why your memories of such incidents are, are everyone's memories of such incidents are so clear is because adrenaline um, aids this sort of hardwires memories because it's all to do with survival. Right. So that if something, you know, you, if you feel threatened or if you're under threat, adrenaline mm. surges through your system and lays down those memories so that if you're in, it's a kind of atavistic survival mechanism so that you're, if you're in that situation again, you can remember mm. how you got out of it. So I think that's why we do, everything seems to slow down, doesn't it, in those moments if something terrifying happens to you. It does sort of, yeah, hardwires it. So I do, yes, I do remember thinking... I'm, I'm in trouble. That was really stupid. What, what am I? How am I going to get out of this? Um, but luckily, I had a friend who helped me. And then, when you were eighteen, you were almost attacked by a binocular-wielding strangler. Which, yeah. again, that doesn't feel like that was something where you put yourself in danger. Or do you think you did go into quite an isolated place? Just describe what happened then. Yes. Yeah, so I was out walking and a man who I had passed earlier down the valley appeared in front of me and I think in that way that you have to learn, or women have to learn mm -hmm. you learn, it's a kind of a bodily instinct isn't it, sometimes your body knows something before your mind does there's a sixth sense isn't there mm -hmm. yes. something and you suddenly wrong. you get the hairs on your back and your heart speeds up and you think this, this isn't right but what's extraordinary is you were unbelievably calm, weren't you? You didn't scream and turn around and run away or try and get out of I don't of it think it or... was a question of feeling calm. I think I knew that that wasn't going to work, that there was, no, there was nobody around, mm. so there was no point in me screaming. And the only way, the only thing I had in my uh, armoury, in a sense, was being able to talk my way out of it. There was no, I didn't have any other chance. He was probably twice my size, so... I think in, in those, if you do get in, I'm fortunate enough to be in those situations, you flick very quickly through your options and think, well, you know, what have I got on my side? <laughs> Not much, apart from trying to talk my way out of it. So he actually put his strap around your neck, didn't he? Well, we were, he was showing me something and he said, I'll put, I want to show you these birds on the lake. So he stood behind me and put the binoculars over my head. So I knew that the strap was around me, but he kept, he was saying, I want to show you something on the lake, but I, like, well, like I was saying, I knew that I wasn't right. Yeah. It wasn't right at all. Well, what's extraordinary is that actually, it could have just been an incident that you never knew about, but then a few weeks later you discovered yeah. that he had murdered someone. The police came to find me, yeah, and said, asked me to identify who I had, because I reported it, um, and they didn't take much notice, but then detectives came and asked me if I could identify him, and I asked them, I said, something's happened, hasn't it? Mm. And yes, that's how it turned out. Mm. And he had strangled yeah. the other young woman. So, yeah. did you feel it was almost like a sliding doors moment? Your life, that another of those things where it could have gone the other way. Yes, I think I felt a huge amount of guilt for mm. years of actually about her, and that's why, in the book and whenever I talk about it, I never identify it because that part of the story isn't mine; mm. it's hers, you know, and. Did you find out her name or anything? No, it was weird, you know, because it happened so long ago that it was a time before, you know, the internet mm -hmm. and there was no way they wouldn't tell me and I knew nothing about it. And I've never been able to find it since. I did look for it when I was writing the book just for my own, not that I ever would have identified her because what kind of... It would have been so wrong for me to tread on the toes of that tragedy because it's not my tragedy. And how would it have felt for somebody to be... I don't know, possibly opening a book and then suddenly realising that they were describing 
somebody who'd avoided, you know, you know, mm. her, one of her family had read it or her friends. I mean, that would have been awful. And does it come back to you every time you, someone like Sarah Everard gets killed or you see anything in the news about women being killed? Do you get a flashback to it? It happens so often, that though, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, far often, more often than it ever should. So mm. I do, I think about it a lot and I think about her a lot. Yeah, I do probably at least once a day, if not more, because I know it could have been me. It's so awful and so terrifying and it's appalling that it's still happening, you know, and I'm terrified for my friends and I'm terrified for my young daughters and I'm terrified all the time. I mean... Do you have to stop yourself from telling them not to go out? I mean, that, that must well, they're be... not quite of an age yet, it's interesting, but I have... I mean, I think the answer... Well, something that frustrates me, you know, that when these terrible things happen and these young women, or women, you know, disappear... And it's something I've been researching a bit of this for the book that I, my novel that I've just been writing, which is about a young 16-year-old Renaissance duchess who's killed by her husband. And I was just, when I was thinking about it, I was just Googling some statistics about women who are killed by their partners. And it's horrifying, mm. absolutely horrifying. Something like over half of all homicides for, on women are done in the home. Mm. Which and makes it's two home domestic violence deaths a week, isn't it? Which is something, oh, it's something like every four minutes mm. around the world, some a woman is killed mm. by a member of her own family, and which makes the home the most dangerous place for a woman to be. Um, but I think the conversation around it seems to me, you know, whenever this does happen, there's an awful lot of, you know, people saying to women, "You have to stay inside. You've got to carry a rape alarm. You mustn't walk around alone at night." And there seems to be an awful lot of instructions for women. But actually, I would like to know where are the instructions for men. Mm. You know, I have, when my son was a young teenager and starting to go out, and I would always say to him, make sure everybody gets home safely. And if there are any girls in your gang, and if they've been drinking, please make sure you and your friends make sure that they get home. And if they're not going home, you call their mum, you call me, you know, I will call my mum. Mm. So I've always said to him, you have to be careful. Don't ever leave your friends who are girls in a room in a party on their own don't have a you know and I I think we all need to educate our sons we need to educate our husbands and friends and say you know I think something has to be done you know obviously the women being told not to wear revealing clothes and go out at night isn't working is it mm. <laughs> you know we have to do something else we have to tackle the problem from within but you then your next near-death experience came when you were 21 and you were plunging in a plane down towards Earth <laughs> oh, on the yes. way to Hong Kong. Not my fault that time. No. But I'm not sure I'd get in a plane with you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so what were you feeling? Did, again, was it just a sense of, right, this is it? Yes, that was very strange because I was going, I was heading out to Hong Kong. Um, i just graduated and hadn't done very well in my finals and all my plans for, you know, postgraduate life had come to nothing. So I was going to Hong Kong to just to teach English and just to see a bit of the world. And the plane, for whatever reason, just suddenly plummeted. Apparently it was something to do with pressure. I have, someone has told me this more recently. But it just fell like a stone for what felt like a, quite a long time, oh. for several minutes. And was everyone and, screaming? Yes. Yeah. And it was. I mean, I, I was actually still wearing my lap belt, which I always do actually when I've been so I actually wasn't hurt too bad, but the people who weren't wearing lap belts were flew up in their seats and hit hit the ceiling. Oh. And so there were a lot of people in the aisles and all of that. And Ooh. then people, and even the uh, cabin staff were panicking. And that was the most terrifying thing, actually, because normally, as you know, they're so 
serene, but they were kind of running up and down and they were, you know, they were very frightened and calling to each other. And yeah, so <laughs> it was, and I really thought we were going to die. I thought we were all going to die. And then what happened? Pilot it just happened? suddenly seemed to kind of plateau and then it went, went. It well, and then you carried on, on went yes, to Hong Kong. carried on. And, and there were going. people, there were people having nosebleeds and, but we were quite close. So when we'd landed in Hong Kong, there were quite a lot of people were taken out, obviously people who were bruised or battered or had sort of, pressure problems or um, got taken away. Mm. I was okay. I just walked off the plane and <laughs> walked into my new life. <laughs> oh, God. But then you just carried on because you had a machete-wielding person in oh, yeah, Chile, right. didn't you? Yes, and then you had right. the riptide in India. And Do you mm. think I was very unlucky or lucky? <laughs> I think I'm lucky. Definitely Any of your friends lucky. travel with you now? <laughs> <laughs> I, did. I was walking with a friend recently and I dripped off the curb. <laughs> and he said, oh, my God, don't make it number 18. <laughs> 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 no, I... Well, no, I do consider myself hugely lucky because any one of those could have been could have been fatal and mm. I wouldn't we wouldn't be sitting here so no definitely I would yeah I consider myself really lucky I mean you know I have three children and I do the job I absolutely love and I'm still alive I mean what what more could I want really do you think you're also incredibly aware of danger though having been through so many of these things perhaps I mean I think what Certainly what I try and teach my children is, a, is an instinct for your own limits. You know, I would never say to my children, don't climb that tree or don't jump into that river. I think what I try and teach them is <laughs> what I never did, which is think it through. Mm. You know, I think I would say to my children when they were little, I'd say, you can climb up the climbing frame, but how, think, think about how you'll get down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> try and plan ahead or, you know, if you're going out for a party in a tent with some vodka in the hills, which my son did last night. You know, how are you going to get home in the morning? What will you do if it rains? You know, what, <laughs> if somebody isn't well, you know, is there reception on your mobile? You know, think, I suppose it's that. I mean, that's what you have to learn. I think that's what, because we can't all avoid risk. You know, we can't avoid the stranger in a dark mm. alley or the illness in the air. You know, we can't, but what we can what we can control is our response to it, I suppose, mm. isn't it? Or how we cope with it or how we can try to try to deal mm. with it. But the long-term consequences of the virus meant that you also had real problems when you were pregnant. And yeah. and that is not in your control at all. That's what's so difficult, isn't it? You no. can say, this is what needs to happen and, then, and, yes. and this is what I want. And actually, it's quite often men dictating how you're going to give birth, isn't it? In that case, it was, yeah. I, I did meet a not a particularly helpful uh, uh, obstetrician, that's the word for it, um, Yes, who I still actually, he still appears in my dreams sometimes <laughs> because he was a particularly unpleasant man. But actually, weirdly, I do have a friend who thinks he was wonderful. We only realised this quite recent, quite a long time into our friendship that he actually did give her a cesarean. She thought he was bad. So, you know, obviously, I'm sure he is a very good doctor, but he, when whatever day that I encountered him, it wasn't. So he refused to let you have a planned cesarean, even though you've been told you need to. Yes, yeah, so I was one. told when, when I was young that that the damage I'd suffered to my neuromuscular junctions in my spine and pelvis meant that I wouldn't be able to have a natural labour. Mm. And so I did, I told him this when I had my meeting and his response was, get up and let me see you walk. No. <laughs> so, and I was so startled, I just, I did it. And then he just said, well, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just gonna, and then he, he said, oh. what, what's the, where's the proof that you were, you had this illness as a child? And I was thinking, what, why would I make it up? You know, what am I? And I think he was just sort of implying that I was trying to, just lie my sort way into a cesarean. Yes, you know, yeah. it's so, so, I was so unprepared for it. Um, 
Yes, yeah, so, but actually what, what the neurologist in the hospital when I was young, it did actually come true. Yeah. So I had to, after three days of labour, no. <laughs> I had to beg him, which is which he eventually did. But he was, I don't know, he was just, just a kind of doctor that doesn't listen. But I, you know, and I think maybe, you know, trying to be generous with him, maybe he was looking after a ward that was horribly understaffed and horribly underfunded and he was just trying to do his job. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe he'd seen three people that morning who were begging, you know, begging for unnecessary mm. cesareans. I don't know. And it was a very, very, very busy and understaffed London mm. hospital. So, I, I mean, I have no idea what the kind of pressures that are on a, an NHS obstetrician, I can only imagine. So maybe if I'm feeling charitable, <laughs> mm. I should say. And actually, I met, I met lots of amazing professionals mm. in the medical trade. So, mm. you know, I wouldn't want to judge him too harshly. And you write really movingly in your memoir about having a miscarriage. Mm. Do you think that taboo's now disappeared? Because people didn't write about it for a long time, did they? I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I think it is. It's a very difficult thing to talk about and be public about, I think, at the time, because it's such a raw thing that happens to you. And it's such a devastating thing, but it's so private, because often people haven't even told anyone they're pregnant by the time you have a miscarriage. So... But I hope it is. I think the only, the only solace that I could find at the time was reading other people uh, writing about it. Just the idea there is such there's a huge amount of comfort and commonality, isn't there? Mm. The commonality of experience. Mm. And you said that you felt that having children, you've got three now, mm. uh, that that has changed your attitude to risk. How yeah. has it altered how you see the world? Do you, are you incredibly protective of them, <laughs> if not of yourself? Are you more nervous now as well about what you do I don't know about nervous I think I'm I think there's the sense when you have a child you suddenly realize that you, that you have bifurcated haven't you and mm. actually it's not just you you have to take care of anymore you know and if I was to be reckless and to vanish from the scene you know I think I you know I think it's impossible to know until you have a child how much they need you mm. you know and how much they need you to be around and be there as as often as you can and actually for quite a long time you think that you know you think maybe <laughs> in a very different way they still need you when they're an awful lot taller than you don't know <laughs> obviously it's not the same as having a toddler different needs they can make their own snacks mm. for example but they still need someone to buy those snacks <laughs> i mean it is it the need changes but you're you can't be profligate and reckless with your life because you have this incredible it's not, I don't know, responsibility is not quite the word. It's just, you just need to be there. Your mm. presence is required, mm. isn't it? And your daughter suffers from severe allergies as a result mm. of an immunology disorder. Does that make it even harder? Because you're never quite sure what's going to happen for her next. It's almost like going back to your parents with you. It is hard. I mean, I think any family who has a member with additional needs, as we do, I think your life is different. It's a bit like living in your own little city-state or your own little country. You know, the people who are inside it understand the rules and the boundaries, but other people looking in may not. So I think... But I always try to frame it as something that all five of us share. It's not just her, not so much the burden, but also the responsibilities and the needs. We all have to meet those needs. But also to remember that her health issues also affect the other her siblings. You know, I think that's yeah. always important to remember that it does have an impact on them and, 
you know, they need, they need extra care too. They have extra needs because of it, because of them. And are you just always on high alert? There yes. must have been some... See, my phone is on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just something you learn to live with, you know, and you just have to get used to and you adjust your life around it, you know. And I think always it's very important to remember that there are people who are in a more extreme situation than you. You know, there are days when it feels overwhelming, mm. you know, any child with additional needs does feel like that. But I always try and remind myself. I remember the, first, the very first hospital we used to go to, I was in London, and we used to have to walk down a corridor, and I remember holding her little tiny hand and walking down this corridor, and there was one sign going to immunology, going uh, left immunology and going right. There was a sign to paediatric oncology. And so I always, however, I've kind of uh, overwhelmed those to be like, thank, thank God, I'm turning right and I'm not mm. turning the other way. You once wrote that in any fairy tale, getting what you want comes at a cost. <laughs> what did you mean by that? Is it partly, do you think that your life has been more magical because of all the near misses and the pain and fear? Or, or partly. Not? I mean, I always think, you know, I think fairy tales, or folk tales actually is probably the better word for them, are fascinating, I think, because they are, they do chime with this very, very deep folk memories that we have as human beings you know they go so they have such such mm. deep roots and so they are they do reflect a sort of universality of human experience everything is in them you know we can mm. see there that's the reason why they have lasted so long mm. because they still mean an awful lot to us now even in this modern world but that particular line I was so I had a lot of fertility issues after my son who's now 19 there's six years between him and my middle daughter so we did and she's she's an IVF baby which I'm perfectly happy to talk about I think uh, you know there are an awful lot of um, fertility issues that people do suffer mm. an awful lot mm. um, so I suppose I think and I it felt very it did feel quite I mean IVF does feel magical doesn't it I think I mean obviously it's a huge it's all hugely reliant on science but there does feel an awful lot of wishing and hoping and Cost. You know, talismans yeah. and yeah. <laughs> cost. Yes, I'm not not to mention the cost. Has it yeah. helped having a husband being there since you were at Cambridge together? Is it <laughs> is, is he kind of like your rock in there? Well, Meghan Markle might just... say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I no, I don't think of him as my rock. Not at all. I think of us as partnership, really. I mean, I've known him since I was 18, which is so. But we we weren't together for another 10 years or so. We were just friends for a while, and we were both with other people and in and out of other different relationships and we got together. Actually, I was 27 when we got together. Um, no, I would, <laughs> I would never describe my rock. Makes me sound so kind of boring and yeah. stolid. <laughs> no, not to. I think you'd be quite offended. <laughs> Rightly so. Do you think that overcoming adversity and surviving so many times has given you an understanding of life that makes you a better writer? It's hard. It's funny. I Thinking about why I'm a writer or what kind of a writer I am, I would be with or without it is something I deliberately don't think about. I put it out of my mind. It's a bit like staring at the sun. You know, I know that it's there, but it's bad to look at it too closely. You know, it would be good for me to analyse it too much. But it's hard to say. You know, there's so much debate about whether writers are made or born or... But I think it's probably a mixture of both, isn't it? And I... And certainly, I think there is, you know, as the quote that you read, I think I do... Obviously, I wrote it, so I do agree with it, but <laughs> I do think there is something very formative about adversity. I think drifting through life with things going right are, are good, but like Kathleen Jamie says, you know, happiness writes white. 
Um, so, yeah, I think everybody needs a bit of grist in their mill, don't they? And looking back to yourself at the age of eight, what do you wish you could tell yourself if you were back in that hospital room? Would you say, actually, you're going to be a writer or... <laughs> Uh, don't worry or do worry <laughs> you're going to have a lot of near-death experiences what I say I think I'd just say you're going to be okay mm. yeah I don't know I don't know if I would tell her she wanted to be a writer I think that, think that probably wouldn't be very good for her I think she there's a lot of striving that needs to go on <laughs> when did you write your first book well I was always writing I've always had that urge um but actually I still don't feel like a writer if, if a stranger asked me what I do for a living I often say I work in books. <laughs> yeah, because if you say I'm a writer, people people sometimes say, "Well, should I have heard of you?" Which is a really weird question. You think, "Well, I don't know. This. <laughs> I don't know. Should you?" I've no, I've no idea. <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't. I don't really feel. You know, I think the minute I feel like a writer, I think I'll probably stop. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> do you wish you'd avoided the virus you had as a child, or do you think it's so much part of who you are and it's made you who you are? That you don't regret that. it's funny I can't yeah I think it happened when I was so young that it's not something I can subtract from my life it's mm. just it's just part of who I am so no I wouldn't actually I don't think I would I don't think I would change it Maggie O'Farrell thank you very much for joining us on Past and Perfect it was such a pleasure thank you for having thank me thank you You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the novelist Maggie O'Farrell. The producers were Anya Pierce and Lucy Ditchmont and the series producer is Ben Mitchell. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, which features insights from our interviews with guests such as Lem Sissy, Hilary Mantel and Douglas Stewart. And you can listen back to all our previous episodes of Past Imperfect on the Free Times Radio app, or download them from wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.